0: Season 2, Episode 1 of Arona The Journey to Nocerre Cubby and Jack had mixed feelings as they rode their horses away from Newdonia. They were excited to finally be heading toward Nocerre, one step closer to going home, but also nervous and uncomfortable at having left both Troy and Drew behind. They understood why their brothers had stayed, but in the back of their minds, they wondered if they'd ever see them again, and that troubled them. And yet, they had no choice. As much as they loved their younger brothers, it was more important for them to get home to their families. They assured each other Troy and Drew would be fine. Drew was a survivor, and Troy was under the protection of King Richard. They had to believe their brothers would meet them in Nocer, with Chilsia and Marin, and then they would all go home together. They could only hope for the best. Deep down, They knew the chances of that happening were slim. Even if Drew made it all the way to the city of Elden, the odds were it had already been attacked. As for Troy, neither one of them thought there was any way he'd be able to convince Princess Chosiah to abandon her grandfather and kingdom and come to Nocer, much less convince her to come to Earth. All they could do was hope he would eventually decide to leave the princess and join them. They rode their horses through the arid landscape of the southeast kingdoms, and then up north through the sand dunes of the southern peninsula. They passed by many outposts and small towns in the desert. They would rarely stop and notice that many of the buildings had been abandoned and were now in the process of being swallowed up by the desert. Unlike Troy and Chelsea, who were on the main road that went through the major cities of the southern kingdoms, Cubby and Jack took a shorter path that was the direct trade route from Nudonia to the north. Terrible sandstorms slowed their push northward along the east shore of the uninhabited narrow strip of land. They wore leather and glass goggles and special full-length white robes over their clothing to protect them from the sting of the piercing, wind-blown orange sand. They struggled to keep up with their two guides, who rode very large and powerful animals that had the shape of horses but were twice as big, with wrinkled skin and horns and antlers. The strength of their animals made it easy for them to transport big bundles of Newdonian steel and weapons. Both the guides seemed friendly enough. Mahavir was a rugged man with light brown skin who looked to be in his sixties and dressed in a bundle of colorfully wrapped robes. He said he was originally from Indusland, but had since gone out on his own, trading the famed Newdonian weapons with the kingdoms of the North. Ji, their second guide, was tall and slender and had brown skin with stripes of cream and yellow. She had massive ears that were attached to horn-like antlers, and was oddly beautiful with piercing golden eyes. Strangely, at the wrist on each arm, it split into two hands, giving her a total of four hands but only two arms. She had unique layered skin that covered her body and looked like clothing. Without Xi, they would have all surely have died from thirst. Somehow. By putting her huge ears to the ground, she was able to detect water deep beneath the sandy surface. Once she found the water, she and Mahavir would use a long, screw-tipped, collapsible metal pole to reach the water. It resembled a giant straw and could be used to sip from. It wasn't a lot of water, but it was sufficient to keep everyone alive. Finally, they reached the end of the sandy peninsula and continued to hug the eastern shore of Arona. Their guides were particularly nervous about their journey through the wastelands of Asu Kotala. We travel only at night for the rest of our journey, Zhe announced in her strange, raspy voice. Not safe until we reach Noseir. The two moons of Arona provided enough light for them to travel, and over time, their human eyes seemed to adjust. Zhi was able to easily see at night, and insisted they tie their horses to her beast, which they learned was called a Gupa. Early one morning, after another long dark night of travel, they finally reached the edge of the wastelands. As they passed through, Mahavir suddenly turned back to them, his voice urgent but just loud enough to be heard. Get down! He signaled for them to lie on the ground, and they did as he said, both trying unsuccessfully to pull their horses down with them as Mahavir had done with his Gupa. Luckily, they were now in a dense forest, and the brush hid their failure. A sprawling army slowly marched west, directly in front of them. Huge hairy animals roughly 20 feet high marched in a line. They looked like giant, powerful water buffalo and wore thick leather armor that covered their bodies. Riding on top of the beast were upward of 20 soldiers wearing funny-looking metal helmets and each carrying a spear. The soldiers were short and stocky and had strange wrinkled faces and full body armor. They didn't look human. Besides the beast, ran hundreds of large, cat-like creatures with long fangs. They resembled a mixture of a horse and a lion. Their riders seemed to be the leaders and were directing the army. They marched to Gaston, whispered Mahavir. They are not friends, Richard, from the kingdom of Rinaldith. Cubby's heart sank as he thought of Troy and Drew. They sat quietly for the next two hours waiting for the army to pass. We need to get away from this place before we camp," Mahavir said when they were gone, and he sat out carefully and across the now muddy path the army had made. Cubby and Jack followed, and had almost reached the other side and the shelter of the dense forest when one of the giant cats came sprinting towards them, presumably trying to catch up to the army. Don't move! She shouted from a top or behind them. The giant cat slowed as it approached, its rider staring at them suspiciously, and stopped a few feet away cat let out a roar. The rider began yelling at them in a strange, guttural language with a deep, rasping voice waving his spear as he did. She replied in the same accent. Cubby heard the name Nocer. The rider snapped back at her, shaking his ugly head and waving his spear again, now obviously upset. In reply, she threw open her long robes, exposing her arms and four hands, holding two crossbows. Before Cubby and Jack could even blink, a barrage of bolts flew toward the enormous cat and its passenger. The soldier was only hit in the arm, but the cat took bolts in several places, and it loosed another terrible snarl. Cubby tried to grab his sword, but the cat leapt over them, knocking him off his horse. As he scrambled to his feet, he saw Mahavir chasing after the wounded cat on his Goopa. The blade of Mahavir's long, feathered spear flashed in the morning sunlight as he swung, cutting the rider down. Go!" Mahavir yelled as he rode back toward them, and they hurried across the rest of the path to the forest. Days passed. They continued to travel only at night without further incident. Luckily, other than being exhausting, the journey was now surprisingly pleasant. One area they passed through was stunning. It was a white forest of tall stone bushes that looked and felt like coral. The endless variety of coral shrubbery would sprout night-blooming flowers that glowed the now familiar aronic blue in the moonlight. They passed through a vast and beautiful yellow and purple forest full of life. Ji was continually hunting as they traveled, shooting many mysterious animals that she would cook over the fire. The wildlife was wonderfully camouflaged. For example, when they passed through the orange grasslands, Ji would hunt orange lion-faced rabbits. When in the forest, they mainly ate purple and yellow monkeys and monkey-faced deer. She didn't seem to like the taste of cooked meat and preferred to eat fresh scorpion beetles that looked and sounded disgusting. She would quickly grab them from a rock or tree as she rode by and rip off their tails and take crunchy bites out of the enormous insects as they squealed. As the sun rose at the end of another night's ride, Mahavir stopped at the edge of a plateau just in front of Cubby. We're here, he yelled sweeping his arm in a broad gesture at the landscape ahead. The gateway to the Holy Kingdom. Cubby and Jack rode over to him and peered out over the edge. In the distance down below them was a valley of twisted rock formations that spread as far as they could see. In the center of this maze stood one towering natural stone pillar that stretched high into the heavens. He could see smooth stone buildings through the clouds. They were the same color and texture as the rock with many small, round windows. Follow me. They made their way down the mountain until they reached the light red sandstone passages they had seen from above. Their guides knew exactly where to go and quickly selected one of the thousand winding narrow crevices. Mahavir dismounted his koopa and began tying it to one of the few ancient trees outside the mouth of the passage. We'll leave the animals here. It is impossible for them to make it to the narrow paths. The others dismounted and did the same, before following Mahavir into the narrow opening. Stay close to us. The guardians of Nohsep protect these canyons. Men and women are sent from Cumens and tribes all over Arona to watch over these lands. It is a great honor, and only few are chosen. They live here their entire lives, guarding a few great paths leading to the holy city. They continued through the winding alleys. Sometimes they went straight through holes in the rock or under arches, Other times, they climbed up steep boulders and squeezed through cracks that opened up to other hidden pathways. It was easy to see how one could get lost and never find their way out. These pathways all looked the same and went on for countless miles. Many of the rocks had holes in them that looked almost like man-made windows. A few times, they would be walking and Cubby and Jack swore they saw something move in the holes above or beside them. The guides explained that these were the guardians and that they shouldn't be feared. The guardians knew Xi and Mahavir from past visits when they would bring food to trade and because of the mark they wore on their foreheads, temporary tattoos of the holy city in the sky that permitted their entrance. Outsiders were strictly forbidden in Nocer, and neither Xi nor Mahavir was sure what was going to happen. In the past, they had only visited it alone, bringing sacred offerings for the monks and goods to trade. Over the next several hours, the group caught more frequent flashes of the guardians. They became increasingly worried that no one had approached them yet. Jag was very curious about this holy city. He had read extensively about it in Russo's famed library and had told Cubby many stories, but much of what he read was surrounded in myth and confusion. There were records of the monks occupying Nocer for the last 70,000 years. No one knew where they had come from, and many believed they were native to Arona having lived here since the beginning of time. It was interesting that most of the kingdoms of Arona considered this a holy place. Jack had told Cubby of many religions brought to Arona from other worlds. However, most had died out over time, replaced by the complex, enduring beliefs that surrounded the Arona of Nocer. Cubby felt excited to meet these holy men as they neared the sacred city. After several more hours of walking, they eventually neared the base of the giant center stone column and spent the rest of the day in its shadow. At last, they passed through the final archway and were greeted by a tall, very thin, Asian-looking man with white hair dressed in simple robes. He wasn't wearing any shoes. We've been expecting you, said the monk. I am Lord Raislan. Welcome to Noser. Please follow me. He turned and opened a small wooden door at the base of the enormous rock, then disappeared inside. One by one, they squeezed in after him, up a narrow spiral staircase that had been carved into the mountain and seemed to go on forever. After what felt like ages, they emerged into a large open room, with many small round windows letting in the remaining sunlight. Brightly glowing, pure trickled down the walls before flowing into the cracks in the floor that fed a square pond in the center of the room. Why have you come here? asked the monk, turning to face them. King Richard sent us. He told us that you could help us return to earth, said Jack. Does it have to do with the power of the Arone? If so, how can it help us return home? To understand the Arone completely is to understand everything, for everything is the Arone, and is everything." Jack glanced at Cubby. The brothers remained silent, neither one of them knowing how to respond to the monk's strange non-answer. "...It is the lifeblood of the universe. Everything you see, feel, smell, hear, and taste is made from a roan." They simply stood there, staring at the glowing liquid as he pointed to it. In the beginning of time, the Creator used a roan, the Creator's life force to form the universe. Every planet, being, plant, and animal was created from this original source of our own. After the creator had established the order of the universe and started the process of life as we know it, he left the core of the original source at the center to provide balance and harmony. This core developed into a large planet that became known as Arona. Arona holds the universe in order. Her connection with the countless and ever-growing planets and all life that flourishes in the universe is ever-present. From time to time, she pulls her subjects back to the core. This is why you are here. Arona wanted you back. For some mysterious reason, you were selected to return. Whether the hand of the Creator was involved in that selection, I know not. But how can we use that power to return home? asked Cubby. Defining the power of the Aron is beyond your ability to fathom, for it is to define the power of the Creator. Through the mastery of the life force, the unimaginable can be realized. Once you reach true enlightenment and fully recognize that everything is truly connected. Space and distance become irrelevant. Just as you were brought here from your planet in an instant, the same is possible to return." "'But Henry Hudson, didn't he come here too? Was he able to return home to Earth?' Jack asked with a bit of edge in his voice. Malhavir shot Jack a warning look at his tone, but the monk simply said, "'As I told Henry several hundred years ago, mastering their own Is a lifelong commitment. I have spent the last 12,000 years dedicating my life to its teachings and have only just scratched the surface. It is better that you accept your fate. Arona has selected you. There must be a reason. Now is the time to learn why." Cubby's heart began to pound. I'm sorry, Lord Araceline, but we don't have that much time. Our families will be dead long before we return home, please. There must be something you can do to help us return. How did Henry get back?" Henry left Nocer not long after he arrived. He did not have the patience or discipline to dedicate himself to the Order. It is only through true enlightenment that mastering their own is possible. I have no idea where Henry is now. But is it possible? Can I be sent back to Earth? Cubby pressed. Anything is possible with the Arone. We have sent beings through space, but once they are sent, there is nothing we can do to get them back, nor to know of their safe arrival. Over the last few thousand years, we have been trying to perfect the process. We have spent many beasts that are native to Arona, and a few willing, enlightened monks. Unfortunately, as I said, once they leave, we know nothing of their fate. Hope flared in Cubby's chest, and he turned to look at his brother. Jack nodded. To Uriaslan, Cubby pleaded. We don't care about that. Please, kind sir, please send us now. We'll take our chances. He then took a step forward, closer to the pond of Aron. We must return to our families now. We can't wait a few hundred years. The monk looked at the brothers for a long moment before inclining his head. I will discuss the matter with the head council in the morning. In the meantime, I will show you to your sleeping quarters. You must be very tired." Thank you, my lord. The next morning, Arias Long came to the rooms to take them on a tour of the expansive monastery. Inside, they found the famed Grand Library of Nosere they had heard about from Russo. It was truly magnificent. Millions of books filled the seemingly never-ending built-in stone shelves. The main open room was hundreds of feet high, and they could see the sky up above and what looked like a roofless opening of the giant rock they were in. Continuous walkways wrapped upward around each wall as far as the eye could see. About a hundred feet above, Cubby saw the bottom of a massive white globe floating freely between the walls of the room. It had a single railless walkway going through its center. Before he could ask about it, He realized their guide was leading them up the walkways toward it and soon enough they entered the globe. It was dark, with countless tiny lights blinking at them from every direction. Once they reached the center of the globe, he saw they stood on a large glowing blue light. The light you stand on now represents Arona, the center of the universe. The lights you see around you represent the countless galaxies and suns of an ever-expanding cosmos. Where is our planet? asked Jack. Where is Earth? Your planet is there, he said, pointing to a tiny light high above in one of the galaxies. As he pointed, it pulsated. How small they felt, surrounded by galaxies without number, like a speck of dust that didn't matter. Earth, a very small and young planet of one sun and one moon. Distance is 2 trillion Shians from here. Population thought to be approximately 8 billion. An immature world, yet rapidly developing in recent years. Primitive, warlike, superstitious beings with widely accepted culturally backward concepts and prejudices, such as racism, sexism, and individualism millions dying needlessly from starvation and war. <laughs> home sweet home, laughed Cubby uncomfortably. Your people have caused much destruction here on Arona. Their warlike tendencies and insatiable greed have killed millions and destroyed many peaceful, highly evolved beings, said Ariaslan, obviously bothered by Cubby's sarcastic comment. Just like on your planet, men from Earth who rule here care more of their personal fame and power than the basic needs of their subjects. I fear your planet is on a familiar path shared by countless worlds before. Spiritual and political differences, fueled by greed and pride, will eventually destroy your home. Such a shame. I can feel their suffering now he said, continuing to stare at the distant light of Earth. Our people seem to be much more advanced than people here on Arona. How can you say that they are primitive? asked Jack. Technology is merely a side effect of distance from the Creator. All intelligent beings have souls connected to the Creator. Those souls instinctively desire to be closer to the Creator's core. The farther a world is from Arona, the stronger those beings intuitively desire to return. This causes beings from planets on the outer edges of the universe to subconsciously develop technology at a more rapid pace, Arislan explained, as countless small dots farther away from where we stood started pulsating. Time reveals all unknowns. Most planets closer to Arona are far older than yours. And have had billions of more years to progress. Their beings have had much more time for their physical and intellectual capacities to evolve. Once those beings arrive here, their desire for technology fades away and they are unable to find the materials needed to make their old technologies work. It is here they must learn to utilize the most powerful technology in the universe, the Arone. How soon can we ask the council to help us? Follow me. We will go and see the head council now." They were then led out of the library to the top of the rock mountain and into a large, transparent walkway leading away from the stone monastery. The floor, walls, and ceiling were made of what seemed like glass, but somehow clearer. They could hardly tell the difference between the glass and the blue sky, and it almost felt like they were walking on air. They looked below through the breaks in the clouds, and could see the maze of the canyons they had passed through. The walkway opened into a large room made of the same type of glass. In front of and above them, standing in a semicircle of seven, was the head council. These were the monks who were in charge of Nocer. They had each served here for more than a thousand years. There were four women and three men, all beings of different types, each radiating a strong light blue glow. The brothers were guided to a spot about 20 feet from the council, where Lord Araislan told them to wait. After several minutes of silence, he returned. The Lord Masters have reached a decision. They have told me that you are permitted to stay and learn the ways of the own. Please know, this does not guarantee you will make it home. This also means you will live a simple life of study and meditation, cut off from the outside world. If, after some time, we feel you are ready, we will attempt to send you back to Earth. How long will that take, asked Cubby? If you work hard, you might be ready in less than 10 years. 10 years? No way, Jack erupted. He grabbed Cubby's arm. Come on, Cubby, let's go. Cubby stayed where he was. Is this the only way back to Earth? He asked Ariaslan. Yes, it is the only way. Then I'm staying. What? Jack stared at him, speechless. Then he grabbed Cubby's arm again. Cubby, no! Let's go in with the others and cast stone! Cubby pulled his arm free and stepped toward the monk. Ariaslan merely nodded, as though he had expected the descent. The head council said only one of you would be staying. I will tell your guides that only one of you will be joining them on to Gaston. Now please follow me, and I will show you back to your room." As he turned and began to walk away, Cubby moved to follow, but Jack blocked his path. "'Cubby, come on! You can't stay here for ten years!' Cubby threw up his hands. "'What choice do I have? I have to get back! Besides, I can't keep going on like this. I'm a mess. I don't think I've been sober for more than five minutes since we got here. Jack opened his mouth to retort, but hesitated as their eyes met and he noticed Cubby's tears. Okay. Okay. I understand. I'll go to meet with the others in Castone. There has to be a faster way home. I have to find one. In the meantime, let's get some rest. I'll leave in the morning. With that, Jack wrapped his arm around Cubby's shoulders and they walked toward Araislaan. Hi everyone, I wanted to let you all know about my new YouTube channel that I'm really excited about. I'll be releasing a ton of videos about Arona and many of my other stories there. It's a lot of fun and it helps this story come alive. I hope you all go there now and subscribe. You can find a link in the description. See you in the next chapter.